You're listening to Help Jamise Banks Change the World, a podcast produced by Whatever It Takes Consulting Incorporated. Welcome to another episode of Help Jamise Banks Change the World. I'm Jamise Banks, and our topic this month is equity, statement versus reality. I'm joined by my fabulous co-host, give him a deep voice, Thomas Griffin. Well, you know what? Sometimes I do have to drop my voice into my optimum pitch level. Thank you, Jamise. You know, each and every month we start off the show talking about somebody or something that's kind of changed the world. Well, this month, our change the world moment is a young lady, Taylor Hall, a student at Ball State University who, after the George Floyd death, decided she was going to do something to change the world. And now to our special guest. Our topic for this episode of our podcast is equity, statement versus reality. And I am so happy today to be able to spend a little time with Howard Ross. Howard and I, our lives have traveled in a parallel universe. So we started as educators, believing that every child regardless of their zip code, is entitled to the opportunity for a quality education. And somehow that led us to diversity, equity, and inclusion work, each of us starting a company, Howard's initial company being Cook Ross, working with organizations and individuals to bring inclusion, diversity, and equity into their space and into the community. Howard's a little bit ahead of me in the author category. He has three amazing books. I like to refer to him as the father of unconscious bias. If you haven't read his books, you're missing an amazing opportunity to learn and grow and engage. Uh, And so today we're going to be talking with Howard about his perspectives, the things that he feels we should be doing to change the world. And I'm going to start, Howard, um, I sent you that video with a young lady on the campus of Ball State who asked us, what are we going to do? And so I want to start with you sharing with us what you think we need to do um, to get to equity in our community. Well, thank you so much. First of all, it's so good to be with you again, Jimmy. It's always good to be with you. And, um, you know, particularly at this time, given what's going on in our culture, you know, it's, uh, you know, obviously it's the ultimate question. And and I think that, um, you know, I'm I'm often when people ask me that question, like the what are we going to do question, I'm reminded of a quote that I heard once a long time ago that was attributed to Albert Einstein. I don't know whether it was true or apocryphal, but 
but one way or the other, it's a great quote. And, and supposedly they said to him, what would you do if you had one hour to fix the world, to heal the world? And he said, I'd spend the first 55 years understand the first 55 minutes understanding what the problems were. And I think that um, I think that one of the challenges that we have in dealing with equity in our society is that um, that we live in denial. Um, you know, one of the challenges of American exceptionalism. And, and, you know, I mean, look, we know we all know this is a great country and especially potentially great. We've got this, you know, this incredible um, vision of who we're supposed to be. But we also know that we haven't lived into that vision uh, for, for more than 400 years. And um, and unless we're willing to understand that, not take it on like like pillaring ourselves or, you know, self-flagellation or anything like that. And I think sometimes people misunderstand that when they hear people talking, especially about race and especially when it applies to African-Americans. Um, you know, you hear this resistance from people on the other side of the of the aisle who say, well, you know, why are we demonizing white people? Why are we demonizing America? And, and I don't see it that way at all. And, you know, for me, it's very much like any person who's going into recovery from some kind of an addiction. And I see racism as an addiction. I see, you know, this kind of behavior as an addiction. Very much in the same way, you have to acknowledge the truth about what's going on. And and the truth is that that we still have a society that's impacted by systemic racism. Um, I don't think most of it is intentional. And I think, you know, we've got tons of research, as you know, that shows that it's not. But frankly, that doesn't really matter to George Floyd or to or to, you know, hundreds and thousands of other people who are affected by it. The fact that it's not intentional doesn't mean that that Floyd is not dead. And so and so I do think we need to embrace that, not from the standpoint of beating ourselves up, um, but really understanding the dynamic and how it affects us and how the decisions that were made literally hundreds of years ago are still embedded in our societal structures today and the way we operate. Um, because until we do that, we'll never be able to dissemble that system. Are we living in denial or have we chosen to live a lie? Ooh, good question. Well, I, I, that's a great question, Thomas. And, and my answer is um, probably some of both. I think there, there, there are lots of people um, who... Well, I think that there's a broad range of people. And, and this is the important thing, I think. You know, we were talking just before we got on air about this binary thinking that we tend to fall into. And, and I think we tend to, I think one of the challenges is we've tend to, tended to feel like you've got the good people or nowadays the woke right. people, and then you've got yeah. the bad people. And, and it, it really belies the fact that the truth is it doesn't live that way. It's a huge continuum between on one lower level David Duke and Richard Spencer and, you know, people like that. And then on the other hand, Gandhi or Dr. King, you know, it's like there's a huge span in between that. And, and I think that there are for many people, um, the belief in the possibility of America um, and the hope that that possibility is real blinds them to the fact that it falls short, that we fall short of our goal as being this country. Um, and I think that there also are some people who um, for for reasons that um, are are often um, have to do with skin color and race um, who, who don't want to believe that and who, who consciously create a narrative that's false or ignore things to justify it. And um, I think that, that this is true in any caste system. And I think that, um, you know, Isabel Wilkerson's uh, distinction of, of the U.S. as a caste system around race is really helpful in understanding that. So, you know, Howard, you and I had the conversation about this being 
um, probably the best time, even more so than during the civil rights movement, for us to really impact systemic change. We've got two generations of young people, um, and Taylor's video is an illustration of young people in action. They've witnessed amazing things. They've had access to technology and information, you know, on a grand scale, right? And we've gone through all of those changes from when we called it multiculturalism, right? Then we had the unconscious bias phase, and now we're smack dab in anti-racism, right? So everything you see now is anti-racism. And I think Dr. Kinsey's latest book is Anti-Racist Baby, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're tossing around new terms like cancel culture. Um, so where do you think all of those things will take us? You know, if this is our best time, how do we get there? How do we use all this time and all these things to get there? Well, you know, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, it, it's for me, it's basic Newtonian physics. You know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And I think if we look historically, um, what we can see is that um, at the times of the greatest breakdowns is when we often have our greatest breakthroughs. And I think this is a good example. Obviously, you know, Trump's um, ascension to power was not only a reflection of, but also an acceleration of um, rising nationalism and nativism and white supremacy and people who who just don't like the fact that, that the world is changing um, and that the demographics of the world are changing. And have been convinced by people, sometimes for nefarious reasons, sometimes for self um, uh, for selfish reasons, um, to think that the people who are the threat to them um, are people of color. Yeah. And um, and this is why we see that people vote against their best interests. This is why you see many people, particularly uh, lower income white people or middle to lower income white people, voting for politicians whose policies and practices don't protect them at all, don't serve them at all. And and, and I think Wilkerson, Wilkerson distinguishes that really beautifully, I think. She says that, um, in, and I really recommend the book. I really recommend Cast. It's the best book I think out there. It's, it may be the best book I've ever read on understanding racial dynamics in the United States, and I've read a lot. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, and she, what she says is that, you know, if you think of this society as a, as a class society, which we normally do, you know, lower class, middle class, upper class, right. then it doesn't make sense for people to vote that way because they're voting against their own personal economic interests. You know, for example, right now there's this whole um, debate on about um, minimum wage. And clearly, you know, people in lower income white families mm -hmm. Um, would be better served by having a $15 minimum wage or, or at least something better than the same seven and a quarter that we've had forever, right? You can't pay the rent with. Um, and so and so that's a great example. So why are you voting for politicians who are denying you something that could help your family, right? But if right. you think about it as a caste system, then it makes perfect sense because they are voting in their best interest and their best interest is the prevalence of whiteness and, and whiteness remaining in, in power. And, and, and I think history shows us, and we saw this when people you know, pushed customers out of their store in the, in the 60s down mm -hmm. south in Woolworths and the like. And, and we, yeah, we've seen yeah. it hundreds and hundreds of other times. We've seen it when employers don't make the best use of talented people. You know, all of this stuff is is the opposite of self-serving. It You know, that store owner who pushes that customer out doesn't get that customer's money. That boss who doesn't treat that, that African-American female employee in a way that she gets to really um, flower as an employee and, and prosper, loses a talented person. So what justifies that? Well, what justifies it is the, the ranking order, this this caste system that says that at least at least I staying on the top. And if we look at American history, this goes all the way back to Bacon's Rebellion in 1676. And, and decisions were made at that point to declare, to, to divide lower income people by race, because that left at that time, 
white people who were in leadership positions because it was exclusively white people safer because the, the lower class can't can't coalesce against you if you convince the white people in the lower class that they're more like me than you are like those black folks who, who are slaves next to you. So, you know, so, so this started in 1676. So so with, with that having been said, if by chance we ever get to a, a, a period in our in our country where that bias does not exist, mm. does that mean that we would go to those scary words, communism or socialism? <laughs> You know, how, how does that manifest itself? Well, I mean, I think, you know, Thomas, you're pointing to something else, which is which is sad, but true. And that is that, you know, most people are either aligned with or um, or frightened by words that they don't really understand. I mean, obviously, there's there's nothing in the United States that even smacks of getting near a socialist country. I mean, you know, it, I mean, there's some people who believe that that, you know, any time the government comes in to help people become socialism. But I, I said to somebody just recently, I said, so do you think that the government shouldn't put up traffic lights to keep us safe? <laughs> do you think do you think it's silly for the government to, to say we have speed limits so that people don't go 110 miles an hour in your local neighborhood, you know, and kill and kill one of your children? I mean, we, we make we make hundreds of decisions all the time that says that it's better for us to have a collective agreement about certain things because society operates better when we make certain collective agreements, you know. Um, so I think, you know, that's that's all part of it. I think that's all part of the game of scaring people away from things that we don't want. You, if you label it communism or you label it socialism, right. you know, or for that matter, on the, on the other side, if you label it fascism and if you label it whatever. I mean, I think a lot of people on the left are, are waking up to the fact that, you know, maybe we were to um, to reactive ourselves to not see the difference between a Mitt Romney and a, and a Donald Trump. I mean, we may right. disagree with Mitt Romney. I may disagree with Mitt Romney on politics or John McCain or somebody like that, you know, but there are people with integrity. And I know personal friends also who are conservatives who I disagree with politically, but I know that they're good people and I know that they're well-intended and I know that they believe this would be the best way to serve the most people in our culture. And that's very distinct from proto-fascists who are willing to you know, tear down the Capitol to, to get their way regardless of, of the vote. So I think, the, I think we would best serve getting away from all of those labels and just dealing with the issues in front of us. You know, I'm a Trekkie. Um, and one of oh, my too. favorite um, Star <laughs> Trek episodes that I sometimes use when I'm doing diversity training, um, the Enterprise comes into this uh, global world where the people have been at war for like hundreds of years. And they finally have um, perfected war so much so that um, people and buildings are no longer destroyed. So they have this big machine um, and each side decides who won this time or who lost this time. And based on that, they gas a bunch of people um, right. in this big machine. So enter the enterprise to change the world, right? And help the people solve their problem. And they come in and the leaders of the two uh, countries that are fighting, they're having a conversation. Um, and uh, the Kirk looks at them and says, you know, like, I don't get it. You look the same. And one of them says, we aren't the same. I'm black on the right side and white on the left side. Yeah. And he's black on the left side and white on the right side. And I remember that. I remember that episode. Time, right? That was um, Frank Gorshin. So Frank Gorshin <laughs> yes, was the actor. Yeah. That's right. And so it's you to, you know, we're always looking for our differences um, as opposed to our similarities. And we're oftentimes intolerant of those differences, no matter how small they may seem, right? Um, and so if this is the time for change, that's what I love about your books is that they are, they force you on some level to be reflective. 
about your environment. And so how do we spread that? One of the reasons that I have wanted to do this podcast is how do we spread that? How do we get that out there so that people are reflective about our um, differences in terms of the smallness of those um, and the overall, you know, we're all in this ship together. Like, how do we keep the ship going? Yeah, for sure. By the way, another great example of, of that in literature, just given Dr. Seuss has been under some fire lately, is Dr. Yeah, Seuss's yeah. Butter, Butter Battle book, which is also a brilliant one for children, where he talks about these cultures that are at war because one butters its bread on one side and the other butters its bread on the other side. It's very similar. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, you know, I, I think that I think that the um, you know ultimately, um, you know, we do have to we we've the way you know the society has polarized we are now much more focused on our differences than we are on our similarities so one of the things that we found in the research about unconscious bias for example is that there's some really significant scientific research from mit and um you know uh, another some folks in italy and some folks in china they all share the same thing and that is that the more you emphasize difference with people, particularly racially, by the way, because it's obviously visible and it's most related to our clan identifications. The more you emphasize difference, um, the more the um, the uh, premotor cortex of the brain, which is where which produces empathy. You know, empathy is produced by the the part of the brain just be just behind our prefrontal cortex. That those empathy centers go down. They stop producing when we emphasize difference. So, if you were to say to me, for example, Howard, you'll never understand what it is to be a black woman. You know. <laughs> then actually what happens in my brain is that occurs for me as an attack. It occurs for me as rejection. And therefore, I begin to go into protection mode. My empathy center goes down. On the other hand, if you say to me, look, Howard, I, I know you're a white man and I'm a black woman, but I know that I experience bias sometimes. Let me give you an example of something that happened for me, da, 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 da. Um, do you ever have that happen to you? Now, now we're saying we're speaking to our commonality. And in fact, in fact, that's what we found was a huge breakthrough when we started doing the work on bias and um, and, and um, you know, that you could begin to say that it's one of the reasons why, you know, whenever I present because you've seen me present, mm -hmm. um, I always tell a story about my own bias. I always tell a story about my own blind spot for exactly that reason, because I don't want people thinking I'm up here thinking my stuff don't smell and you're bad people and I'm here to fix you. <laughs> you know, I want people to know we're all in this together. And we got we to figure out some way to work this out together. And when we do that, then we can begin to say, oh, OK, well, maybe my bias is against, you know, people who are overweight and, and yours is against people who are for a particular race or somebody else's is against generational stuff. But we can see the common humanity and the way the mind works and the way we create these biases. And from that place, we can we can work together. So, I think, so please. With that having been said, do we point fingers? Do we do we chastise the media? Or who do we who do we find that says who is creating these biases biases and, and making us go down these paths? Well, there, there, there are two answers to the question. I mean, first of all, in terms of I'll get to the media in a moment. But first of all, in terms of who created these, what we've learned is that being biased is is like breathing. I mean, we need this to survive as human beings. The, the brain makes these determinations about who's safe and who's not safe. And, you know, and, and, you know, where you put yourself and where you don't. And how are you going to keep yourself in survival mode? And, um, you know, and if we go back thousands of years ago, it was, you know, people were living in clans who mostly looked the same and acted the same. And they were very small small groups of people. And if you'd see another group around the waterhole, you had to instantly determine if it was us versus them, because if you chose wrong, you died. So we, so, so we learned, we, we learn our brains evolved to learn how to separate people between friend and foe. And our tendency is to, to, to look at people who are very different from us, um, suspiciously. 
um, most people's tendency, not everybody, but most people's tendency is to do that. Now, where media is concerned, you know, I, I know it's really um, it, it's really kind of in these days for everybody to trash the media. The media has really low public approval rating and all that stuff. And it's not that there aren't aspects of the media that that are bothersome. Of course they are. But the media is purely a, a consumer market. And it's become more that way than ever before. And, and in fact, one of the problems that we have with the media is that it's become so much of a consumer market because we're all old enough to remember. The three of us are old enough to remember when we had three stations, basically, you know, ABC, NBC and, and CBS and maybe PBS. PBS came in at some point and that was it. And so and so the 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 economic model for any of those networks was you can't piss off half the United States and expect to be successful financially. So you got you stay in the pocket, you you stay in that central area. There's not five percent difference between the three states. There wasn't five percent difference in terms of the three stations. And not only that, but it was considered because of FCC regulations at the time, it was considered to be inappropriate for news people to have a point of view. Remember when um, yeah. uh, 60 Minutes brought in point counterpoint in the late 60s, uh -huh. it was like revolutionary that they were right. having actual yeah. debates on TV because news people were supposed to be like, you know, objective, you know. Middle of the road. The, all of that changed with cable news. So now you have, you know, a Fox News or MSNBC or whoever, um, and, and they don't need to get the whole market share. If they can get 20% of the people and get those people locked in as their base, they're going to make their money. They're going to be successful. And how do you lock in your base? You throw more and more red meat. So if you're Fox News, you throw red meat to the right wing. If you're MSNBC, you throw red meat to the left wing. And, you know, you occasionally have somebody in who who makes it look like you're pretending to do something other than that, you know. And, and I, you know, of course, being from that side of the political equation, I tend to think that MSNBC doesn't do it as egregiously as Fox. But of course, people on the right think, think that's just as bad or worse. So, but the point is, it's the system that does that. And, and we have, a we have I think, a responsibility, but also the power as consumers to deal with this. We have the power to say, if you're going to just do nothing but try to brainwash me every day, I'm not going to watch you. Click. Yeah. I'm not going to read that. Click. You know? And if enough people click, if enough people say you're fired, then that that model will change. And in fact, sadly, it's that's happening in the opposite direction right now with Fox, because so many people have left Fox to go to Newsmax and One News and these 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 things that are even more crazy. The Fox is Fox is now saying we're not even going to pretend to be neutral anymore. We're going to we're going to lurch even farther to the right. So um, yeah, so I think yeah. that that it's sad, but I think we do have something to say about it if we want to. It, it, but it, does that mean that there's something in our brains that 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 negative stimuli or that consistent stimuli engages us so we won't click? You know, we're, we're so locked in, we just don't want to click. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where the addiction comes into place, Thomas. I mean, you know, this is where it, it feeds that addiction. And and I have to say that, you know, I, I felt it. In fact, you asked before, you, know, you asked me before, Jimmy, so I, you know, why I write my books and I write my books really out of what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing. And that search for belonging came from my own experience of struggling with the part of me that really wants to honor both sides of a conversation. Um, and say that, you know, there, there are decent, reasonable people on both sides of, of any conversation who just see things differently. Um, but then how do I deal with a Donald Trump who, you know, is clearly a white supremacist or, or you know, or people who, you know, who, uh, you know, Josh Hawley, the senator who walks by people waving swastikas and and similar uh, and, and Klan flags and, and gives them the, the fist in the air of support, you know. Can I really say that's just another point of view? And I'm reminded, you know, that wonderful uh, quote, and I, I won't quote it exactly because I don't remember it word for word by 
James Baldwin, one of my great heroes, where he said that um, we can disagree and still love each other as long as your disagreement is not rooted in the denial of my humanity and existence. Mm. And said another way, there are no both sides when one side is genocide. You know, so I think I think we have limitations in terms of that. But I do think what we need to do, getting back to your question, Thomas, is we do need to try to reach reach over, reach out to those people who may disagree with us, but are not in that extreme. And there are a whole lot of folks out there. There are a whole lot of folks I know because I interviewed over 100 people who voted for President Trump for the book. And and there are a whole lot of those folks who are good and decent people who just couldn't vote Democrat. They didn't want to throw away their vote. And so they held their nose and voted for him. You know, yeah. um, we have to embrace those kinds of people to reach out to people who, you know, who may have voted that way. But I, I distinguish between, for example, Trump supporters and Trump voters, because there are a lot of Trump voters who would who are not necessarily Trump supporters. Yeah. Howard, you and I had a conversation about another one of our uh, common experiences, um, and that is um, Ukraine, Kiev, and that part of the world, which um, has its, you know, your heritage has its foundation there. Um, And I had the blessing to spend some time there. And I think one of the things that most impressed me about Ukraine, and I spent uh, most of my time in Kiev and areas around Kiev, um, is the complete, total, and absolute transparency that exists there um, around all the things that have happened, right? So they don't neutralize or sweeten up good or bad, right? So people in Kiev and Ukraine were among some of the first people to be the victims of Nazis, and they have museums and areas where they talk transparently about that. Mm -hmm. Um, They talk about all of the things that they have happened, and you see signs and symbols everywhere that says, if, if we aren't saying this stuff out loud, if we aren't keeping this in the forefront, that it's destined to happen to us again, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think sometimes here in our country, we lack that transparency. We want to make things look or sound differently or better than they actually are. And so then when people see the reality, they're shocked by it or taken aback uh, by it, or they don't acknowledge it as the way things were or are. Um, And so how do we help people? How do we get, when we're talking about the media or education or whatever method it may be, how are we more transparent about the realities? You spoke earlier about people not being aware or not being able to address it. How do we get those things out there um, in a way that's not finger pointing. Um, Cause like you, I say when I'm training, like bias is natural. You need bias to survive. It's not having bias that's the issue. It's how you manage the bias that you have. So how do we, how would you suggest we go about getting um, new information out there so that people can um, activate those good centers in the brain? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I, you know, you bring up a really good point. You know, George Santayanda, the great um, Spanish philosopher and historian, famously said, um, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And I think you're absolutely right. And I think people often say this to me when um, last summer, when all the controversy was around, around some of the um, Civil War memorials that were being pulled down, the statues were being pulled down. And, you know, and a number of people who I got into conversations with who would say, well, you know, we can't, it's part of our history. And, and, and what I said was very similar to what you're saying. Look, Nazism is part of German history. It's mm-hmm. part of it's part of there. But and they have museums. They have curricula about it. Beginning in grade school, they all through colleges, they have curricula about studying Nazism. How did this happen? And why did it happen? And they put in laws and things to prevent some of the things 
you know, in fact, it's a big issue right now because there is a right wing extreme, um, you know, nationalist party that's that's right. starting to gain strength and, and they've got restrictions on certain behavior for that reason. Now, that's almost anathema to us because of our belief in free speech. And and, and I, I, I'm somebody who, who is a real champion of free speech by my nature, because usually when free speech is used, it's used to subvert the people that we believe in, not you know, the people in power. But I do think that. Um, but I said to folks, it's like. We're not, we're not talking about forgetting the past, but let's keep it in museums where it belongs. It doesn't, the Nazis don't, they, they, they never forget about the past, but they don't have statues of Hitler and Himmler and Goebbels in public squares, you know, because they don't want to celebrate them as heroes. And I think that's the difference. I think the challenge that we have, this goes back to what I said earlier about this, um, this notion of American exceptionalism, um, is that, you know, we decided at some point that it was more important for us to think that we were the best as a country than to actually be the best. And so most Americans have no idea how we compare to other countries. Um, we just know that we're the best. And so we don't know, for example, that we're 32nd in the world in infant mortality, that, right. that from an education standpoint, the last numbers I looked at, we were like 26th in language, 30th in, in science, and 34th in math or something like that. And um, dropping. Yeah, and exactly. And and we could go through hundreds of other examples of the way other countries manage the healthcare system. You know, we're the only developed country in the world that doesn't ensure that everybody has quality health care. I mean, you know, things like that. And yet we can't talk about those things, because if you talk inside of this conversation about American exceptionalism, if you even point to anything that we could do better, not to say we're terrible, but that we could do better, then yeah. somehow you're not patriotic because you're right. not jumping into the thing and saying we're the best. And and that is just like just like any human being who has um, malignant narcissism, who believes that everything that they do is better than everybody else, that human being is not going to grow. That's why narcissism, extreme narcissism is so dangerous, because yeah. people will will fight to keep their belief more strongly, even if it harms other people, even if it does the exact opposite of what's needed, because their need to be number one is greater than anything else. And the same can be true for a country. And I think that we, we as a country suffer from extreme narcissism. Right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, I was just thinking, uh, we've, we've gone around a lot of these points. Uh, Jamise, should we let him at least talk about his, his books and give some overview <laughs> on the three books? Or? Uh, yeah, well, we're going to have just a few more minutes before uh, we're done for today. Oh. And you know, Howard, this always happens when you and I have a conversation. Right. We're like, there are a hundred more things we could talk about. Um, but I think there are two things I want to touch on um, and give you a chance to talk about to your new company. But I think um, as a woman, I would be remiss if we didn't at least touch on inequity as it pertains to gender. You know, we um, I think the Me Too movement sort of pre- um, was the precursor to then Black Lives Matter. You know, we're looking at issues of equity um, at every place. We've also had issues around LGBTQ plus and, you know, all of these areas. So I'd love to hear you speak a little bit to areas of bias, not only in terms of race and ethnicity, but other things that we um, address that still hit those same areas of the brain and have sure. the same foundation and bias. And then if you could tell us about your new company, because, you know, Cook Ross was amazing and has done some great things around the country and the world, but um, you left that and started something new. So mm. if you could say a little bit about other forms of sure. bias and um, end us up with where you are now with your new company and um, where you want to see things go with your books. 
Sure. Well, f- well, first of all, I think we, we should acknowledge that yesterday was International Women's Day. In fact, I did a, mm-hmm. I did a keynote for a conference in, in India yesterday morning at 5 a.m. my time, but uh, mm-hmm. um, about that. And we were talking, you know, about gender. And I do think that that's important. And I think that, you know, one of the challenges we have to understand, first of all, is that it seems like we are almost incapable of um, of walking and chewing gum at the same time relative <laughs> to these issues, you know, so so we yeah. can only take on one thing at a time. So so we had the Me Too movement. Everybody was was mm-hmm. drawn into the Me Too movement for, for good reason. And, and the Me Too movement has done some really great things. I mean, there have been some overreaches for sure. Yeah. Um, and I do think we need to be careful that when we finally wake up about an issue um, that we keep in mind that some of the people who get caught in, you know, I, I'm not somebody who says, well, you know, so many women have been hurt. Who cares if a man accidentally gets hurt who was innocent? You know, I think that we I think that we have to be sure to be discerning about that. Um, but then when the when, you know, George Floyd was killed in the Black Lives Matter movement resurfaced. Um, in in strength, I and mean, not like it ever went away, but you know, right, resurfaced right. in strength. All of a sudden, Me Too got pushed to the back burner again, and and you know, and then you know, something will happen. You know, I'm sure around another issue, and that will take for you know, we can handle all of these at the same time. And I think that I think that they all speak to the fact that yes, we do have tremendous biases around gender, for example, and and interestingly enough. Um, some of the gender, some of the subtlety of the gender biases is really fascinating. So, for example, one of the studies that we uncovered when we were doing the research um, was following doctors in Veterans Administration hospitals when the doctors went into situations in the emergency room, what we might call being coding situations, where they had to jump in to save the patient. And anybody who's watched ER knows that the doctor in that circumstance is in charge of the room, right? Do this, do this stat. You know, it's not a time for consensus leadership. (laughs) <laughs> and then what they found was that when male doctors do that, they often get pats on the back um, and feel really good about themselves. When female doctors do it, actually, the academic name of the study was witchy with a B. Mm-hmm. That's the actual academic name of the study because they get called the B word for, mm-hmm. for behaving the same exact way. And not only that, and this is where it really gets deep, they've so internalized that that they go around and apologize for their behavior afterwards, even though they did what they needed to do to save a patient's life. And so there, there are hundreds of studies that show that kind of subtle bias. And, and I think a lot of times um, where bias in general is concerned, uh, we miss the boat because we think that, you know, being racially biased means you're a member of the Klan or being um, or <laughs> yeah. being uh, biased where gender is concerned means that you're a complete misogynist. And, and of course, those people are out there and they need to be controlled. But in fact, what the research, you know, you know, unquestionably shows is that that's a very small percentage of the of the larger part of the issue, which is these systematized kinds of ways of thinking and perspectives that we don't even know we had because they've been around for so long. You know, if we have time, I can give you a quick example of this, even with yeah, myself. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was, I've been leading I've been leading a course on anti-racist leadership for um, a, a, um, a 240 leaders in the Washington, D.C. area recently with a good friend of mine I've known for 30 years. She's an African-American woman. And we were doing one of the sessions recently, and um, and we were having some tech problems. Not unusual for people in the Zoom world. Everybody knows this, right? And she couldn't she couldn't see her stuff on the screen for some reason. We couldn't communicate clearly with each other. Well, as a big white man, and size is another piece of it. I've been trained in my life when things aren't working, you pick it up, you take the ball over the finish line. You know, you make sure that it works. And so I jumped in and I kind of you know jumped in and filled in the blank and made it work. And then at the end of it. I, I realized myself, actually, before she even realized it, and uh, that that I had run right over her, you know, and it wasn't my intention to do that, but right. it was just my 
And I don't think it's apart from being a white male. I think that that's part of the conditioning is that your responsibility is to ultimately make it happen. Right. And so, so of course, the next session we had, I immediately shared with the group what had happened and I used it as a teaching moment. You know, I used myself as a teaching moment because there's nothing I would rather not do than, um, right. you know, than to in any way, you know, suppress this woman or, or, or step over this woman who I love dearly has been a friend of mine for more than 30 years. Um, but that conditioning took over and that conditioning is in each of us. And I think that that's what we need to really do is that that's why I always tell people this work starts from the inside. Right. 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 So before we have to go, tell us about your new company oh, yeah. um, and what you're doing with that, though. I'm sure, sure. it's the same greatness that you were doing with Cook Ross yeah, just on a smaller yeah. scale because you keep trying to sneak out and people keep trying to bring it back. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what it feels like. You know, I, well, it wasn't my intention. When, when, what happened was in, in, I started Cook Ross in 1989 and we built it up to a company of 50 people and we were very blessed with how well um, it did both, both in terms of having impact and also in terms of being a successful company that allows us to employ some really great people. But I got to a stage in my life, you know, I just turned 70 and I got to a stage in my life where um, both my wife, who was my business partner, Leslie Traub, um, was one of my business partners, um, wanted to have some more um, flexibility at this stage of our lives. And when you're running a company of 50 people, um, you don't have that kind of flexibility. There's a lot of responsibility involved. And so we had a younger business partner um, who um, who really wanted to take over. So we were able to to shift the ownership of the company. And so, and I said at the time that I was rewiring and not retiring, that I, it, I, I knew that I wasn't finished. Um, but I also didn't want to, I also, like I said, wanted to have, you know, we do some other kinds of work. I do some work in transformational leadership. I teach mindfulness work. I'm a meditation teacher. You know, I'm a musician. So there are other things in my life I really wanted to do. Um, but I knew that I would still be doing some of this work. So we created our company, Udarta, which is actually the Sanskrit word for generosity and compassion, just as a as a small, you know, so that we could have a company to operate from. So we're not growing that company. We have no intention of growing that company. It's just really a, an entity to work with and, and trying to continue to do new kinds of work, particularly around belonging, um, doing a lot of work now around racial equity leadership or anti-racist leadership um, work. Um, and, um, you know, working with, um, I've got the blessing of doing quite a bit of work with Dr. Jeanetta Cole, who's been my dear friend and mentor for 20 years, where she's like family to me and working with her is just amazing. Um, so we, we often do work together as allies and, um, you know, I, and about, I would say about half of the work we do now is pro bono community-based work because fortunately with the sale of the company, we can afford to do that. So, um, so I feel really blessed to be able to continue to do the work and, you know, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't see myself ever not doing some of this work, but I do, but I do feel at this stage of my life that it's time to let some of the brilliant younger practitioners who are around, um, have a little bit more of the center stage. And so, you know, I'm not really marketing myself or anything like that. I just, um, you know, I, I take projects as they come. If they're really interesting, we're doing a, you know, a really great project right now with a, a major, um, financial institution with 60,000 employees and we're training their top 630 leaders in racial equity leadership, for example. But most of what I'm doing now is, is keynotes and shorter pieces. So, Well, you know, it's always amazing, um, Howard, to have conversation with you. And I will have to say, um, like we said to our first podcast guest, um, we're going to have to circle back to you because I'm sure we have... I Tons of questions and people who want to hear more. Um, and as we start to go deeper into some of these topics, like I'd love to hear about some of the work you're doing with leadership, because there are so many companies that are asking, how do we help our leaders um, be able to coach and train and build better relationships?
projects. And so going deeper into, you know, the kind of work um, that you're doing there, I still don't believe that there's not going to be a fourth book. I just can't imagine. Well, there, there, may, there may be, but like I, like I said, you know, I'm, if, if it gets written, it's going to be written because there's something meaningful to say, not just because I need another book with my name on it on the shelf. So right, yeah. look at but, but I do think... None of your books are about a book with your name on it on the shelf. No, of All not. of your books are so introspective um, and sort of almost force you to look at yourself in a different way and to do something with it, right? Um, so I'm hoping that there's going to be a fourth book because I'm hoping that the work you're doing now with anti-racism is going to inspire you to help us all look at ourselves in a different way. So um, we want to thank you for your time today. It's like I said, it's always amazing um, to be with you. And we look forward to the opportunity um, to hear from you again and keeping our eyes out for the great work that you're doing. So we want to thank you because whether you meant to or not, you're helping Jamise Banks change the world. So thanks for being with us. Have an amazing day. Thank you so much. So good to be with you, sister, and, and good to be with you too, Thomas. Nice to meet you and uh, look forward to further conversations. Hey, Thomas, was that not an amazing conversation with Howard Ross? Just amazing. I'm always blown away every month when you come up with some of these guests and each one is better than the one before. Yeah, I'm excited. Next month, we're going to be talking about health with Dr. Willie Underwood. And no, we're not talking about the food groups. And yes, you can still eat bacon. He's going to talk with us about how we can change healthcare and everybody can be healthy. So if you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you subscribe. And if you're listening on iTunes, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a chance to help Jimmy Spanks change the world. See you next month. You've been listening to Help Jimmy Banks Change the World, a podcast produced by Whatever It Takes Consulting Incorporated.